Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead, hit that subscribe button, ring that notification bell, and you'll get notified when I post content each and every week. My guests are Greg Glasgow and Catherine Meyer. Mayer, I'm sorry, Catherine Mayer. Let me, let me take two. My guests are Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, authors of the new book, Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalist, and the ski resort that never was. The book tells the fascinating story of Disney's vision for a mountain ski resort in California and the intense opposition to its development. Greg and Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Great to see you. You're very welcome. Good to see you guys, too. Uh, okay, let's start with the inspiration. I mean, anytime you want to write about Disney, uh, it, I guess it's a matter of what to focus on because there's so much to talk about with Walt Disney. But why focus on this particular story about the ski resort? Uh, what what you know motivated you guys to want to talk about this story? Sure. So I grew up as a Disney person. So anything to do with Disney history in particular really interested me. But, you know, I feel like everyone who thinks they know about Disney, you know, they know certainly about Disneyland and they know about Walt Disney World and they know a lot about the movies and things like that. But this is an area that people hadn't really heard before. You know, there's there had been like a few blog mentions here and there about this. But other than that, that was pretty much it. And we, you know, we came across um, came across this uh, this story when we were visiting the Walt Disney Family Museum um, in San Francisco a few years back and thought it was beyond interesting. So we basically started to research it and realized that, you know, it wasn't simply this fact that Walt Disney had at one point tried and failed to create a ski resort and a year round recreation destination, but it really was this very intricate, very involved story that included a years long battle with environmentalists and involved Walt Disney's death it involved, you know, it touched many aspects of the Disney company, even beyond the scope of this story. So we just thought it was extremely fascinating and we're pretty shocked that no one had told this story. So we thought, let's, let's try to do this. Uh, and a shout out to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. It's a wonderful place. I recommend yeah. it highly. I've been there, taking my kids there. It's an awesome, awesome place to visit. Oh, um you. Walt Disney was such a visionary. Uh, he was an entrepreneur, uh, a leader in, you know, what I call um, entertainment technology. Um, why did he decide to try to develop a ski resort? And, you know, what did he hope to gain from developing this type of uh, environment or endeavor? For sure. So this would have been this whole story kind of begins in 1960, in a way, at the Winter Olympics in California which Walt was a part of. He was the um, chairman of pageantry there. So he helped to create the opening and closing ceremonies. He provided entertainment for the athletes. And this was only about five years after Disneyland had opened. So really kind of the future was wide open in terms of what they wanted to you know, do going forward. He really liked this experiential destination he created with Disneyland. And at the Olympics, he really kind of got into, he was a skier. And then he really did get into sort of entertaining people on the slopes and like working in a ski environment and things like that. And he just started to think, you know, could I do this better than where the Olympics are being held at this resort? And what would a Disney ski resort look like? So he knew of this area in California, 
that um, would eventually be put up for bid by the Forest Service. But it was really kind of the combination of those factors that led to him wanting to do this. Uh, in many ways, and you write extensively about this in the book, um, the fight against the development of the Mineral King area, uh, it kind of gave rise to the modern environmental movement. Um, tell me about the role of the Sierra Club uh, and how that organization evolved uh, based on this fight. Yeah, they, it was it was super interesting to see, you know, obviously when we were researching exactly what happened to the Sierra Club over the years, they were, you know, they were one of the biggest environmental groups at the time, and, and they still are now. But they were founded by John Muir, who was a famous, um, famous environmentalist. He founded many national parks and things like that. And that was back in the 1800s. So this club had been around for a long time. But a lot of a lot of the club had kind of at one point been about, you know, let's get together, let's camp, let's hike, let's enjoy the outdoors. That's what a lot of it was. But then when we're looking at the in the 1960s, the 1970s, obviously things changed a little bit. So they were they became very vocal about issues that started to crop up, you know, when we talk about clean air, clean, clean water, and the dangers of pollution, all these kinds of things that we hadn't really thought about, you know, I mean, obviously, we had thought about them a bit, but not in the same, you know, in the same, in the same scope, the same way that we started to think about them in the the 1960s and 70s. So when this development started to come into question this Disney development, the Sierra Club was very concerned. First of all, they loved Mineral King. They actually went, a lot of the the people in the club actually went there to, again, camp and fish and all these kind of things. So they, of course, didn't want that area to be marred by a development, and especially one with Disney attached. Of course, you know, they had just opened Disneyland not that long ago. And I think the bigger issue with with it was really that they didn't want any development happening. So, of course, they were very concerned about whirling machinery. They were concerned about thousands of people coming in. There was really this greater question of should all these beautiful kind of natural areas be developed or should we keep some of them sacred? And it is important to note that this area in Mineral King, California, where Disney was um, starting to plan this thing, it wasn't undeveloped necessarily. There was some, there was some infrastructure there. There were about sixty or so cabins, um, and a post office and, and a general store, but but obviously not to the scope of of what Disney was planning. Uh, you tell the story of obviously the opposition with the Sierra Club. You know, a lot of galvanized support uh, on a, on a national level, even. But you also tell the story of the local folks, uh, and one in particular is Jean Koch, uh, who was instrumental in fighting this. And uh, to me, she represents the epitome of a citizen activist. Um, tell me about her story and um, how she was able to, you know, parlay her her ob- ob- obstacles to this development into actually being successful, because she she played a key role in that. She did play a key role in this. And she was she was really amazing because, again, like you just mentioned, we were kind of seeing that grassroots activism. So she did. Jean Koch had a had a cabin. When I say that there are some cabins in Mineral King, she owned one of them, her family. And so this was an extremely sacred place. So, of course, she didn't want this to happen. She actually was a Sierra Club member as well. 
but she was just a fascinating, fascinating um, woman who, who did a heck of a lot against this Disney development. She, you know, started by putting up signs and, and um, creating bumper stickers and t-shirts that basically said save mineral King. And then it kind of went far beyond that. She, she essentially wrote hundreds, maybe thousands of letters throughout the years, just calling out this development saying this can't happen. Here's why she wrote to lawmakers. She wrote to the Disney company themselves um, newspaper editorial pages, all things like that. And then she actually also funded a documentary to educate people on Mineral King, its history, and also just talk about why this development shouldn't happen. That documentary, believe it or not, is on Amazon Prime. People could actually watch it now, which is extremely fascinating. And what else did she do? She did protests. She, there was actually at one point a march on Disneyland, which we write about, which was extremely fascinating. And also hikings that happened in the Mineral King area. So she was she was such a great resource and an amazing character. We interviewed her multiple times for um, for the book, and it was really fantastic. And also to see her role, you know, and again in that in the '60s and the '70s, and to see a female, you know, kind of empowering for uh, to see the 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 women's rights activism and of course the environmental rights activism as well. Um, you know, obviously there was huge controversy over this development, um, but there were people in favor of it uh, who supported it. Tell me about some of those folks and uh, what was their interest in in seeing this come to fruition? Yeah, there were. It's interesting to see that, you know, of course, we write about the opposition, but there really were, as you said, I mean, you know, almost at one point, I think, based on letters that were submitted in, in favor or against one of the environmental impact statements. It was almost 50, 50 for and against. So the people that were for it were largely skiers, right? So, I mean, all the skiers in California, this area was sort of equidistant from LA and San Francisco. So, you know, the big draw was that it could draw people just a few hours drive from either of these big metropolitan centers. And a lot of skiers there were excited, you know, A, to have skiing closer to home and B to see what Walt Disney of Disneyland fame was going to do with the ski area. And there was even a group called the far West ski association that at one point they would actually bus people in on the weekends into mineral King, pull them uphill with these snow tractors and let them ski down just so they could kind of see what the conditions were like and also see what the area was like. They were kind of trying to show like Catherine said that, Hey, this isn't a completely undeveloped wild area. So they wanted people to see that for themselves. And of course, a lot of politicians and, you know, business people and things like that were completely for because it was going to create jobs, it was going to bring in millions of dollars into the economy and, you know, really be a boon for that area in terms of tourism and stuff like that. And there were some heavyweight uh, icons of the 20th century in this book, you know, you had Walt Disney and you had you know, governors of California and, you know, the presidency. I mean, there were so many huge political interests um, working on this and, and hashing this around and the Department of Interior. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it was a massive undertaking. Um, but having said all that, ultimately, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, how did this case uh, affect future environmental cases that come before the court? Because it really was a landmark case. 
it was a landmark case. That was one of the things, you know, when we were first researching this and we first heard about, oh, the Disney ski resort, like, wouldn't that be a fun story to tell this neat resort that he would have built with all these cool things and then come to find that it was this huge environmental battle that went to the Supreme Court it was kind of pretty fascinating and another reason we decided it would be a good book. But really what happened with Supreme Court, um, you might be surprised, you wouldn't be because you read the book, but people might be surprised <laughs> to know that the Sierra Club didn't win that lawsuit. I think, you know, you, you hear about that and you think, oh, the Sierra Club took it to court, Supreme Court judge for them, and that was the end of the story. But in fact, the Supreme Court, they did rule in favor of the resort going forward in favor of the Disney side. But what they said was that, you know, the Sierra Club, they sort of had a footnote in their decision that said the Sierra Club can go back to the courts, can refile this case, showing how they have a more direct connection to this area. The Sierra Club sort of deliberately didn't file their suit in a way that showed how they would be damaged by the development because they sort of wanted to have this be a test case for just protecting the environment purely based on aesthetics. So that was one part of it was that now there's this sort of roadmap for citizens to say, oh, okay, if there's a development that I'm opposed to, if I can show how I'm affected by it, then I could potentially stop to sue it. And then the other side of it was a couple of very famous dissents that came out of the Supreme Court case, most famously one by William Douglas, basically arguing that, as he said, trees have standing. So in other words, mountains, trees, all these beautiful areas almost should have the right to be the plaintiffs themselves in cases like this, that they're, you know, it's worthy to protect them purely based on their aesthetic beauty, not showing in any way how a human is even affected by it. So those two things together really kind of help shape the future of environmental law going forward in a lot of cases. And how prescient was he that uh, he had been a member of those some of those environmental groups and I guess anticipated a, c a case coming eventually to the Supreme Court. And he, he, it was it was interesting and fascinating that he would have the foresight to get out of that group, knowing that at some point some of these <laughs> cases may come through. I guess that's where the judges because they have to look ahead. Uh, really yeah. interesting, interesting point about that that situation. Um, yeah, that was a cool thing to find out. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, you know, Walt Disney passed away during this process. And so, you know, he was not around when ultimately it was decided, you know, the future of whether it was going to be there or not. Um, but having done the research you guys have done and, and looked at all the information, um, what do you think it would have looked like had he been able to make this come to be? Um, you know, we all think Disney and snow and we, we kind of have an idea, but what do you guys in your, in your mind, in your mind's eye, what do you think it would have looked like? And, and maybe what it would have been like for the people in, uh, in mineral King. Yeah. My goodness. I feel like it would have been, I mean, it would have been so interesting to see, I mean, you know, from what we know with that they were planning, it was, it was of course going to have skiing, but it was going to be a lot bigger than that. You know, they were going to, of course, have ice skating and sledding and ski lifts that would go sightseeing. They were going to have wilderness talks and walks. They were going to educate people. They were going to have restaurants, a movie theater that's going to play Disney films. And it was even going to have what, you know, if you're a Disney parks person, this will be familiar to you. It was going to have this um, bear show. And that eventually became the country bear jamboree, which is insane to think about. So, you know, what we learned was it was going to be, yes, it was going to be a ski resort, but it was really going to be so much bigger than 
than that. You know, they were going to attract families. They were going to attract non-skiers. And I think it was, it would have been extremely influential. It actually even was, even their plans, it didn't happen. It influenced other ski resorts for years to come, which is extremely fascinating. We write about that in the final chapter of the book, but you know, Walt Disney had said when he was building this, and he said the same for Disneyland, you know, this isn't going to be finished. This is kind of always going to be moving. There's always going to be things that we're going to be thinking about and putting in here. And I think that's something to keep in mind because you see Walt Disney World, we see the cruises, we see Disneyland, it's fluid. It's always moving. There's always new things. So I think it could have been even bigger than they ever imagined. I think it would have been obviously a massive success and thinking about the the wide portfolio that Disney has, especially in the vacation space. It's actually, when you think about it, it's like, that makes a lot of sense. You know, they have the ski resort. They even have that, the resort in Hawaii. This was obviously going to be much bigger because this was going to be multiple, multiple hotels and things like that. So it would have been really interesting. You know, Walt had said he really wanted to keep it kind of natural, have it be educational. And I think that would have been the heart of it. You know, we see that at Animal Kingdom and Disney World, we see that in many places where he he loves nature, he loves wildlife. But at the same time, you know, he was planning the Country Bear Jamboree. I'm sure other other shows and kind of Disney flair would have appeared. So, I mean, I, it would have been really, really fascinating to see. I think it would have been extremely successful. I don't think it could not have been just because it's it's Disney. You know, most of what they do, especially in the vacation space, has been extremely successful. You think about it, there's no real competition in that area yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. um, you know, what could have been, I just, I mean, you wrote about that. I was just thinking, yeah, what, what would that have looked like? I mean, it would have been awesome. Obviously yeah. aesthetics would have been amazing and the arts and the visuals would have been fantastic, but you know, didn't happen. And so uh, you guys got to write a book about it. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Um, let me just shift gears real quick. Uh, you guys, you wrote this great book. You wrote it together, obviously, as a couple, you know, you, writing is all consuming, and especially a research uh, heavy book like this. How did you guys find that balance so that, you know, were you were you talking about Disney into the wee hours or were you guys able to go, yeah. OK, enough <laughs> about Walt right now. Let's let's talk about, you know, taking out the trash, things like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> a little of both. But I mean, yeah, we definitely were talking about Disney until many wee hours <laughs> and sort of. It really, I mean, it happened, a lot of the writing and the research was happening during like the COVID pandemic. So we were kind of stuck at home anyway. So it was sort of nice to have something creative and sort of positive to focus our energy on. But yeah, we certainly, we say we sort of lived the book for like a couple of years. We, you know, some of the best ideas we had would be while we were making dinner, while we were walking the dog and just sort of like talking about it. But, or taking the trash out. Or taking the trash <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, uh, it was cool. I mean, it's a really fun thing to do together. And I mean, it had its, you know, slight challenges or a few moments of butting heads. But I mean, you know, 99% of it was really just kind of a joy to be able to do something creative together in that kind of troubled time and really be working toward this thing that finally actually happened and the book came out, which at, at the beginning, we weren't sure that was ever going to happen. So was... <laughs> well, congratulations. It's a remarkable read, wonderful story. Um, you know, uh, we often think of how successful Disney is, but there, you know, you 
clearly show that, you know, at times things weren't successful for the Disney Corporation and they do have setbacks and losses. But um, when I read it and as a resident growing up here in California, you know, I didn't know the story. And uh, it just it opened my eyes to a lot of things. So uh, congratulations on on putting together such a great and it's a, it's and I don't mean this. It's an easy read. And what I mean by that is, you know, you get books that are they add chapters in just to add chat. But you guys, it's perfect. It's it's the story oh, is told your writing style. It's just the way you guys tell the story uh, was was great. So oh. uh, I recommend it highly. And, and uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh my gosh, that's so kind wow, of you. Thanks Thank for you those so kind much. words. Thanks. You're very yeah, welcome. I, it was I, fun I, to try to make it in like a narrative way to have people kind of be in in this story. You know, that was certainly a goal that we were trying to accomplish. So exactly, and the balance. You guys were really balanced and fair. Yeah. Uh, you know, you didn't come at it from a particular perspective. You just told the story. And to me, that's what great literature is—just telling the story. So thank you, thank you guys for a great book. Uh, if I can ask, what's next? I know authors are always working on the next thing. What's in the pipeline now? Yeah. <laughs> well, we definitely have ideas in the pipeline and, you know, we have our momentum now and our research process down. So nothing definitive yet that we can really talk about, but definitely a few ideas sort of in this same kind of pop culture history vein. We really enjoyed writing about that and, and digging into research and stuff. So hopefully we'll have some you know, more definitive. For now, you know, there's, there's more in the works that if you like this book, I think you'd like the next one too. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, if people want more information about you guys or the book, uh, where can they go? Yeah. So we have, a, we do have a website. It is DisneylandOnTheMountain.com. And that is where you can find, you know, links to buying the book or to leave a review, anything like that. And um, yeah, just a lot of information about the book and information about us and also a contact form. So please feel free to reach out to us. If you read the book, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. And congratulations on getting a domain name with Disney in it. That's yeah, not right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so far, nice. So nice, 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 nice. Well, Greg and Catherine, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Edric Show and sharing your behind the scenes view of your great book, Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalist, and the ski resort that never was available everywhere. Thank you guys for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really love talking with you. Great questions. Absolutely. Hope I can have you on again. All right. Sounds good, Edric. Thank you. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. As promised, intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, ring that notification bell, and you'll get notified of this great content each and every week. I am your host, Edric Jerome. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will catch you on the next episode.